All right, thank you, worship team. Thank you, everybody. Hey, my name's Eric. If you don't know me, um, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are in this series called The Pursuit. If you didn't know, we have a website that is not, it's not alpinechurch.org, but we have a discipleship website called pursuegod.org, and, and we use this as a way to uh, help people, equip people to make disciples, equip people to have conversations around the sermons and about what matters, the things that are important, and so you should check out that website if you ever or at church and you're like, man, I need to share that with someone or talk to someone. We've got the sermon. It's condensed down to uh, shorter videos with, with questions and all the Bible verses and the notes for the sermon. So um, this is really a 12-week track that, that we want all people to kind of go through, with, with, which is a lot of basics of, of the Christian faith. Um, and so... Today, we're going to be talking about why the Bible. We're in the second week of this series, and we talked about last week, why would you pursue God? And we learned that God is good, God is loving, God has a plan for those who he's called and that are going to follow him, and it is, it is a, a, a blessing and a privilege to be able to know the creator of the universe. He is worth following, okay? We talked about that, and so... Today is why the Bible? Why would I trust the Bible, really? Why, why is the Bible so important? And I want to answer that question, and, and, and specifically, why would you use it to get to know God better? Aren't there other ways? Can't I just do it with my feelings and my opinions and the things that I'm thinking in my mind, you know? And, and no, the reality is, is that this is our manual, this is our instructions for us to know God. I used to work as a maintenance guy, a maintenance planner, and part of my role was to kind of compile all of these uh, instruction manuals and maintenance booklets for all these machines that we used to have to repair. It was at a flour mill, and there were thousands of machines like on 11 floors that would, that would break up grain and wheat, and, and it would divide it, and it would crush it, and it would bag it into flour, and the flour that you guys buy from Walmart or wherever, or, or the things that you eat that have flour in it, it would all come from this place. And there's so much maintenance and, and upkeep and repair and new installations that we would have to do all the time. And part of my job was to do a lot of that. And then I moved my way up into kind of being the guy that would plan the jobs for people. And so I'd have to give them a, a plan. I'd have to give them a, a instruction manual with, with like a, a, a diagram that breaks everything apart, right? And they would go out and they would perform their job. The funny thing is, though, with all of that organization, um, when you have, you know, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to make a little joke about men who have a terrible time following instructions for some reason. You know, you get a new barbecue or you get a new thing at home, a, a sink or a faucet or whatever, and, and you're supposed to install it for the family. And for some weird reason, if you're anything like me, I'm just like, no, this is what I was made for. I'm going to install this. I don't need any instructions. I don't need a manual. And then I end up with like all these extra parts at the end, and like a gasket and some screws. And so now the things that we have at home, you know, they work, but they're leaking a lot and not really working top notch because I didn't follow the manual. <laughs> and that's, that's what I believe about the Bible. If God is our creator, if he created everything in heaven and on earth, 
then the Bible is his manual, his instructions, his, his history book, his love letter to us to help us to know how things came to be, why we're here, and ultimately we get to know who is God and find out how much he loves us. What is his plan and his purpose for our lives? We're going to find that in the Bible. Maybe you've heard that acronym before, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Well, that's not what it stands for, but that's pretty witty, I think. I didn't make that up for myself, but, you know, the Bible really means books or library of books, Um, and these are holy books. These are not just man-made apparitions of, or, or ideas and opinions. These are uh, not just uh, some government's ploy a long time ago to control the people. This is God's real word. And here at Alpine Church, we have a, a value. Our number one core value is to look to God and his word in all that we do. For Christians, the Bible is the foundation for everything that we believe about God. And so why the Bible? Because without it, none of our faith would stand. We wouldn't have any ground. We wouldn't learn about Jesus. We wouldn't learn about the story of God and all that he's done for us. You might have heard it, you know, from tradition or human history or holidays or whatever, but, but we need divine revelation from God to be able to know God. Now, there's general revelation, which is the world and and creation, everything you can see. And the Bible says, yeah, that does reveal to us that there is a God, but that doesn't help us know God. The only way to know God is through God's word. And so our verse for this is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. This is what God says about his own words. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I just love how that is, that that just seems laid out to me, how it's explaining that you need this when life goes bad. You're going to need this when you're trying to figure out uh, where you went wrong, right? Kind of like the instruction manual. You're going to need this to understand all the parts that you're going to need to follow God, we're going to need this to be trained, to to be corrected, and ultimately to be equipped to do the work that God has called his followers to do. And so in this verse, there, there is a lot going on here. As Christians, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. What that means is that these are God's very words written on pages and preserved for you and me to be able to read and digest and understand and meditate on. These these aren't man's opinion. Although God used men to write the Bible, he, he flowed through them by the Holy Spirit. It says, the Bible says, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down the prophecies and the words that they wrote down. So we believe in the doctrine of inspiration. God inspired the word of God, and, and with that, when they wrote it, we believe in this thing called inerrancy. It was without error. In the original manuscripts, as they were penning this down, there were no errors that flowed through the human to the page because it was ultimately God working through them perfectly writing God's word down. There were no errors when that took place. And then we also believe 
in the sufficiency of Scripture, meaning that after, with this, we don't need any other books. We don't need any other um, um, spiritual books or new prophecies or new things about God or, you know, enlightenment. We don't need anything outside of the Bible to know who God is and to follow him. It is sufficient for the Christian life to know everything about life and godliness. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need math books and stuff like that, although I wish those didn't exist either, but... But this is to help us to know God and to understand God. This is absolute truth. There is something um, that I want you guys to know in a world where everything seems to be relative and people say, well, that's your truth, not my truth. Well, that makes zero sense because truth is truth no matter what. doesn't matter whose it is or who ascribes to it or who believes in it. But this is absolute truth coming from the words of God. This is what we believe about the Bible, and we need this because there are so many lies out there in the world, and the Bible's been preserved for us to help us to fight through the lies. Colossians 2.8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Did you know that there are people out there? The world is filled with all kinds of different high-sounding, you know, highfalutin academic philosophies and theories that we need to be protected from. We're so easily led astray by this smart-sounding guy on TV or, you know, the smart-sounding guy in our classroom or in college or whatever it is, and, and we need to be on guard and weigh everything against Christ, the Word of Christ, you know, even if it sounds smart out there, this high-sounding nonsense. I'm very passionate about that, by the way. And I, I don't mean to try to be offensive, you know, to people that have been, you know, highly educated and, and things like that. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is, is that there's a lot of lies out there, and we need the foundation of truth to get the rest of the world right. We need to get the rest of the things right, but we got to start with God. So with that then, I want to talk about three reasons why we should trust the Bible. And we're going to get a little academic here. we got to move pretty fast. And so my first point is this. The Bible can be trusted because we have historical evidence outside of the Bible. We have historical evidence to prove through ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs um, these things have stacked up in favor of biblical reliability. You know, a lot of times, people have a lot of weird ideas about where the Bible came from. But if we use science, you know, the thing that a lot of people like to trust, if we use science to be able to discover, well, can I really trust the Bible? It, it stacks up in favor for the Bible. You see, um, if we look at just manuscript evidence alone, like how many manuscripts how many ancient documents that we have to support that the Bible was true and not just made up. If we weigh that against some of the writings that you probably would have heard in maybe junior high and high school with Aristotle and Homer, you know, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, we have an astounding number of copies of the New Testament. That's everything that happened in the first century, by the way, 2,000 years ago, everything that happened to Jesus and then onward as the church started, that's what the New Testament is. We have over 5,600 
copies in the original language. It was written in Greek. We got 10,000 copies in Latin, and we've got copies upon copies after that. And some of those copies date all the way back to within almost 20 years of the original writings. All right, and so have you ever asked yourself, like, and so yeah, that doesn't nearly measure up to these ancient writings that we learn about in school, but do we ever ask, did Homer really write that? You know, have you ever, did we ever ask if we really believe that these ancient writings are really something that, that are trustworthy? No, no, we don't. We just hear what they say and we believe it. And, and, and so I'm here to say is if you are a person who believes in writings in antiquity, then the greatest writing that you should ever believe in is the Bible because we have way more evidence for that historical evidence for that than we do of any kind of writing in antiquity. And so if you don't really trust or subscribe to the Bible and you think, you know, all these weird theories about it, then you should just throw away every other historical writing as well uh, because they don't even compare to the evidence that we have that stacks up for the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, if we move on to the, the Old Testament, how reliable is it? Not just how many manuscripts do we have, but how reliable is the Bible? Well, back in 800, in, right here in the middle, in 800 AD, so, so that would be like, you know, 1,200 years ago or something like that, um, we had, that was the earliest manuscripts that we had for the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible had been preserved and it's been passed on and it's passed on and the words haven't changed. And we had this main text that we would go off of called the Masoretic text to, to translate it from. And the, the Masorites or those people, they were the uh, Jewish scribes, um, people that were uh, put in charge of copying the Bible. And, and they didn't just exist back in 800. They probably existed even in the BC. They were in charge of copying scrolls of the Old Testament to pass on as the church grew, as synagogues were planted in different places and areas. There were groups of these very diligent and detail-oriented scribes that would carry on the writings, uh, so much so that they would um, take years upon years of their lives to be able to write, like to, almost to the degree of now we have copy machines, they would be that accurate. They would not want to get anything wrong. All right, and so, that, so we had that text. But in 1947, okay, 1947, we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that, that was a, a, a cave in Qumran, you know, outside of Israel, or outside of uh, the land of, of Jerusalem, where a lot of the biblical things would happen um, right by the Dead Sea, this shepherd boy had, was playing, he threw a rock up into a cave and he heard this pottery break. And so they went up there to discover almost all of the Old Testament preserved um, in these jars, in these scrolls on, on, on papyrus paper. The Old Testament had been preserved. And, when, and, and we just take one book, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and we compared what we could carbon date Back to B.C., that means before Christ, we could carbon date it to be over 150 years old, older than, older than Christ, and it was 95% identical in, 
in its accuracy, and the only issues that it really actually had were punctuation issues and spelling issues. None of the sentences were changed. The prophecies weren't changed. The main idea of the book was not changed at all. There were just some, a few errors probably from people quickly trying to, because, you know, a lot of people believe that these scrolls were there because in, in uh, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and, and, and Jerusalem was taken over by uh, Gentile uh, population at the time. And so they would have wanted to preserve these writings. Everything was kind of burned and everything was taken over. So they believed that the whole Old Testament was preserved. So now we have these these manuscripts to compare everything, and I know this is probably getting extremely boring. You should probably go, you should go look this up because I'm not smart enough to keep talking about it, actually. So, but you should go look, about, look at the reliability of Scripture and how much evidence actually weighs towards this stuff really being from history, not some made-up story. And so I want to move on kind of to the next point is not just do we have archaeological digs where we can go around to cities. We can see in the Bible where uh, these stories really took place in real cities that we can dig up. We can find all of this evidence of things that happened in the Bible. But the book itself has some amazing evidence in it as well. Textual evidence is what we'll call it. We'll say this about the Bible. It's an amazing book. It contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, written on, on three different continents, part of it, right? And we've got uh, the Asia region, Europe, and Africa, like different parts in different time periods. And it also had three different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, parts of Aramaic, and then the New Testament in Greek, okay? So all of this statistically, you would have to say, well, then when you put all those books together, it shouldn't tell one unified story. Things should be different, right? It wouldn't be congruent. It wouldn't be cohesive. But yet with the Bible, it starts 1,500 years BC and tells this amazing story through generation, generation after generation, all the way down to Jesus and even after he raises from the dead and the church age starting, and it all tells this one unified story. For that to be able to be possible is just outlandish unless the God of the Bible is actually moving this story and he's preserving it. You know, you got to ask yourself this question. If we believe God created the world and everything in it, don't you think he has the power to be able to preserve something, to preserve his word? Don't you think it's a genius thing to say, how am I, if God's questioning himself, which he probably never does because he doesn't need to because he knows everything, but how would I communicate to all human beings for all time periods? What would be the best way other than God himself showing up in every generation, every day, talking to every person all the time. What would be the best way for God to communicate to all generations for all time? It'd be through a book. It'd be through writing. It'd be through people being able to hear what God had written down, the things that he wanted us to know. That's, it's ingenious to me to think about how God did that, right? So it's not just, a, just some book that somebody made up. It has so much Oh, man, it's so beautiful. I want us all to be so passionate about the Bible, and we should be. If we're going to start a pursuit of God, 
then we should know how amazing this book really is. I want to give you some examples really quick, even though there's 40 authors. I want to just take a look at five of them. All right, Moses, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. He existed back in 1500 BC, okay, but he, he was used by God to write down even some things that had happened before him, like the book of Genesis, creation, the creation account and all that, the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of that stuff that happened in Genesis. Mo, Moses was the one whom God was telling all of these stories to so that he could write them down. But then if we fast forward 500 years, we get to King David. Now, King David, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. He was involved in 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Um, and then his son Solomon, he wrote several books of the Bible as well. And all of it is, is if we look at these genealogies that are like in, in Matthew um, and in Genesis... It's telling the story how God had, had chosen a people group, okay? The Bible is about God choosing this people group to represent him to the whole world. That's the nation of Israel. And he starts with one man named Abraham, and it tells this story after the fall and the sin and the flood and all that type of stuff. This one man is used, and then his son... Jacob, his name's turned to Israel, and through that nation, through genealogies, there were prophecies about this Savior that was going to come and set them free from the, the sin that, they had, that human beings had all got themselves into. And that leads us then, finally, to the, the New Testament, where we've got eyewitness accounts of, from John, who was one of his disciples, or Luke, a first century doctor. We've got people from all kinds of different backgrounds, historical settings, even geographical settings, but yet their stories are all lining up to make sense. And it's all pointing to the promises that God was going to fulfill. Like, let's look at this for a second. Genesis 49.10. Again, this is written 1500 BC. That's like 3,500 years ago, right? I'm not like a math wizard or anything. Is that correct? <laughs> 3,500 years ago, or 1,500 years before Christ, there's a promise, there's a prophecy. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Another translation says, until the coming of the, the one who, who was uh, from ancient of days, from eternity past, this one who's going to be born from the tribe of Judah, who was one of the sons of Jacob, whose name later became Israel. And they had 12 tribes, right? Judah was one of these tribes. It was prophesied that the Messiah was going to come from Judah. Matthew, let's, let's fast forward to Matthew. In the genealogy, it talks about Jesus the Messiah. His genealogy, he was a descendant of David and Abraham. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And so what it's trying to get out is that this promise actually happened. 1,500 years before it happens, it's fulfilled in Scripture, the lineage of Jesus. You, we have evidence that can date our Old Testament and our New Testament. Old Testament is older. It's not as if someone said, well, let's write some stuff in the Old Testament and then write the New Testament knowing that these prophecies are going to come to Pass. No, we have evidence that the Old Testament is older than the New Testament. So therefore, that alone should prove 
Again, the birthplace of Jesus. Micah 5.2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Birthplace of Jesus. Some crazy things happen. Some details in the story happen where, where the, the emperor of, of Rome says there's going to be a census and everybody's going to go back to their hometown. And so the father of, of Jesus at the time, Mary was pregnant at the time. You guys know the Christmas story. They have to go back to Bethlehem in order for him to be there for his family's census to be taking place. And what happens? Jesus is born in a stable in Bethlehem. Another prophecy fulfilled, written 700 years before. The death of Jesus, Psalm 22. This was written in 1000 BC. David wrote this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My enemies surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. All of that stuff happened. A thousand years later, if we look back at the crucifixion, Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. They divided his garments and they cast lots for his clothing. Jesus said those very words on the cross. All right, and then Isaiah 53, same thing. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed, unjustly condemned. He was led away, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. All right, that's about as fast as I can talk through all of that information. There's more to be learned about all of this. But I kind of want to end with something more personal. That's kind of, you know, up here, mind. It's not really down at the heart yet. Yes, there's a lot of evidence. We don't, he's not called us to this blind faith. There are a lot of other spiritual books out there that can be disproven. People have never been able to discredit the Bible, ever. It will never go away. Jesus says that himself. But what makes it real for you and me? Well, we've got to have a personal encounter with God, the God of the Bible. That's my last thing, personal evidence. The Bible is ultimately what it's about. It's not just a bunch of information and a bunch of history. That history is very important, and it is absolutely true. But what it is getting at is that it's about Jesus and changed lives of his followers, that's the most compelling proof of the Bible to me. You know, in my own life, a lot of you guys have probably heard my story, but I used to struggle with addiction, drug addiction, okay, specifically. And I got to the point where I was just a big loser. And I'd hurt a lot of people, and I'd burned all my bridges, and there was a place and time and moment in my life, several of them, where I, there is no hope for me. There is no hope for me. I felt that way. There is nothing that could help me. The only thing, and then I finally came to this place, well, okay, the only person that could help me is God. And so how am I going to get to know him? And I knew it was the Bible. I needed to open this book. I had the ability to read and comprehend and understand, and I knew that churches preach the word of God, and, and so I got involved with church, and I started reading the Bible, and I, as I was getting into this, it, it just really hit me how all of this, God went to such the trouble to save me, to forgive me, to come find me, and to clean me up, and to say, no, I have died for you. You are my child. I have went to all this effort for you. I came down and died on the cross for you. And when I understood that, I was like, wow, there is no love 
anywhere in the world that can compare to this type of love, this love letter that he wrote to me personally. It's not just some book that was rent, meant for people to hash out on their own and figure out, but it was a real personal living love letter that God wrote to all of those who would trust in him. It's a personal letter so that we could trust in God. And one of the things that really just gave me so much hope and assurance and peace was this verse here, 1 John 5.13. And John tells us, why did I write these things down? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write them down, but here's what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, I was afraid. I grew up knowing about God and in Christianity, and I knew that there's two places where, when you, where you go when you die. I knew that. It's either heaven or hell. It's separated from God or with God forever. And I, well, thankfully, I didn't take that as judgment. I, I took that as a fear, a healthy fear to say, I better get settled with God because at that place and moment in my life, I could have died at any moment. And I better get settled with God to figure out what is it that I believe. And when I understood that I can have assurance, he says, that you may know that you have eternal life. The verse says, if you have the Son, you have life. <laughs> I have the Son. I believe in the Son. The Bible says uh, to believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you can have eternal life. And that assurance is what he was writing about. That was the whole point of the whole story culminating into the person of Jesus Christ, saving sinners and redeeming man to be in relationship with him for eternity. And I knew that God had forgiven me at the moment that I trusted that what he said was true, that this man named Jesus 2,000 years ago came and died on a cross and he rose from the dead and it personally applied to my life. And so after that I said, well, if the God of the universe is for me, then, man, who cares what other people think about me? Yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes out there in the world. And yes, God has cleaned up my life to be able to make some things right. I'll never be able to, you know, do more right than I did wrong. But the freeing love of Jesus Christ set me free from my addiction, set me free from my lifestyle. And not only did it just set me free, but God, like, wants to use me now. And it is a miracle that I'm even up here on a stage talking to a, a crowd of people about God and academic, academic stuff about the Bible. It is a miracle that I, don't, I can't even help you to comprehend right now. But that's my personal evidence that not only is it just a book of learning about who God is, but when you discover the truth and you believe in the truth, Jesus says the truth will set you free. And my personal evidence is, is, is that my life was changed from the inside out drastically. Not just a feeling that I had in my heart, not just a thought, not just a, an idea, but life change, drastic life change. Now, I don't have enough time to go into all the stories in the New Testament when people came into contact with Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead. Their lives were changed forever. They went on to go do amazing things. This was the real faith. I'm going to share one really quick, and it was Peter. 
Peter denied Christ three times. Peter was a follower of Jesus, but when Jesus got arrested, he thought to himself, maybe this isn't true. Maybe this isn't the Messiah. Maybe I'm following a lie. And so when he was asked, he was scared, and he said, no, I ain't that guy's follower. No. Maybe, maybe you feel like that. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've left Jesus. Maybe you've said, you know, I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. You grew up, you got older, you went to college, whatever. And you heard differing philosophies and ideas and you said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus anymore. I'm going to go do what's best for me, right? And that's what Peter does. He says, I'm going to go back to my old way of life. I'm going to go back to fishing. He was a fisherman. And so Peter's on the boat and he's fishing. You know, Jesus died. They'd heard that he'd risen from the dead, but they didn't quite believe it. And then Jesus pops up on the beach and he's like, throw the net over. They weren't catching any fish, you know. And he says, throw the net over. And, and Peter's like, I don't know if you know how fishing works, but I've been fishing all day and nothing's gone into the net. If I just put it on the other side, you know, that's not going to help. But that's the same miracle Jesus did when he first met him. And I think he was reminding him, remember what I've done in your life. Remember the miracles you've seen, you know. And so... So what does he do? He throws the net over fish, you know, an overwhelming number of fish. And at that moment, Peter goes, that's Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore and they have breakfast together. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus did this three times to show Peter that he was restoring him from the three times that he had denied Christ. He says, I'm restoring you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? For, for me, you know, this, and I hope this hits your heart in the same way that it does mine, but this shows that Jesus isn't concerned about all the sin and all the mistakes and all the times you've gone against him and turned your back. He just simply wants to show you the truth and, and love on you and, and then use you like he uses Peter in this instance. He wants to restore you and me, and that's the story of the Bible is restoration. The story of reconciliation of a God and his creation. And it's the most amazing story that you and I will ever hear or comprehend. But it's not just a story. It is a historical fact that God says, you have a choice. Are you going to believe it or not? You want to get to know me? It's in these words. So for you and for me, as we decide to pursue God, we've got to do it through his word. So if you're here today and you've been skeptical, I pray and hope that that skepticism is starting to die off a little bit and that, that you would take the step of faith to continue reading. Read the Gospel of John. Continue hearing words preached Churches have grown and lives have been saved and changed through the public reading and the preaching of God's word. And so that is why church exists. And so we can make disciples through preaching and teaching this word. Peter goes on after this to preach sermon after sermon and he ultimately dies. He ultimately dies. And that's the evidence of a man whose life's been changed who met, met the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and says, this is real, and I'm going to give up my whole life for it. I'm going to tell everybody about it. That's what Peter goes and does. 
I would ask you, have you had any life change yet? Has understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has this changed you from the inside out? If it hasn't, I would implore you to continue to pursue God and read these words and understand them. Understand that God loves you and he's written you a personal love letter in all this. If you're here today and you're like, man, i got to share this with other people. Again, use our resources to talk about this with other people. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go make disciples as a church. And I pray that we make some more here today. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you didn't just leave us here alone without instructions, without knowing what you want for us, God. But you left us your truth and your word and you've preserved it so that we could know you in a personal way. How amazing is that, God? Let us not neglect this. You know, there are countries around the world that it's illegal to have a Bible in, in their country. There are somehow still churches that are they're able to get your word and to understand your truth and pass it on. Nobody's going to be able to stamp out your word. Father, but in our country, in our setting, let us not take the freedom that we have for granted. Let us read this book over every other book. Let us share this with as many people as we possibly can, Father, and let us know your love for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.